Right, I'm delighted to be joined in the downtown den, not for the first time, by Alison McGovern. Alison is uh, the MP for, let me get this right, Wirral South, correct. Uh, also, Labour's shadow spokesperson for sport, media, culture, lots of other things, I think. Is it mostly sport that you deal with, Ali? Mostly sport, mostly sport. And on a good day, it's not just football. <laughs> On a bad day for you. Um, I, have to, I have to keep reminding people other sports are available. <laughs> and well, lots to we might talk about football actually. We can talk maybe. about football. Um, not the derby. Not the derby. Not the derby. Far too controversial. Um, yeah. But the business of football. But most importantly today, she's joining me because uh, she's recently come out of a very important meeting with Treasury officials to talk about the financial package that's going to be available to the Liverpool City region uh, as we have moved into a tier three situation. And Ali, you'll be conscious of the fact that, you know, lots of uncertainty, um, an awful lot of people feeling uh, as though they're uh, frustrated, actually, at, at the approach that's been taken, an inconsistency, a lack of evidence that this is actually going to have the desired effect. Nonetheless, once you're there, you've got to go and try and win the resources that you can to help you get through this crisis. So how did those conversations go today? Well, the conversations were OK, actually. Just to take one step back, mm. I think politics has really failed to learn the lessons of Brexit with this pandemic. The lesson for Brexit was don't get into horse trading, you know, with individual sets of politicians, set up a national framework. This is, you know, in the same way as Brexit is, is something that's going to transcend political parties for many years to come. This should have been, dealing with this pandemic should be a national project where we, you know, bring people together and try and agree some principles and you know try and give people a level of predictability what's actually happened is um the government basically trying to play one set of local politicians off against another so whether it's you know um greater manchester versus merseyside in the different way that they were trying to treat them or whether it's internally trying to split up you know boroughs within city regions the government i think have set out to divide people and come out on top, which is an age-old political tactic, um, but I don't think it's going to work. So just to give people a sense, we had a lot of fractious conversations about that. It's been very difficult, and people will have seen Andy Burnham on the telly, you know what I mean? And I don't think anybody watches Andy think it, feeling anything, but deeply sorry for him that he and Greater Manchester are being treated this way. That said, Merseyside was in quite a different position. Our numbers have really spiked much more. Greater Manchester have been high for a long time. We're all, just to give one example, have gone from very, very low numbers um, in terms of people testing positive for COVID, shot right up, you know, in a matter of days. And so we wanted to, if government was saying you've got to go into tier three, we wanted to get that resolved and move forward so we could start working on the track and trace system as soon as possible. And that's really the difference between ourselves and, and Manchester. As a result, we wanted to have a deep conversation um, with Treasury officials about what next, because whilst we've agreed um, it's 14 million for, for Merseyside to improve the, the track and trace system and a further 30 million for business support, which I can talk about um, in terms of priorities. Actually, that's not the end of the conversation. You know, there are so many people who've been left out of the government's support for business and individuals. We wanted to keep that conversation going, which we have done. 
Um, there's a further aspect to it as well, which is about the longer term and the investment projects and the continued diversification of the Merseyside economy. So whilst it's been very, very difficult, I would say as a group of Merseyside politicians, we never give up seeking those opportunities to lobby and to try and set out our ambitions for the economy of the area. So in that sense, you know, you can still have some of those conversations, but I would say overall, the process of negotiation on this has been deeply, deeply frustrating. Mm. It's been an unusual observation to me, but usually Manchester has always seemed to be a bit more pragmatic, let me use that word, in its approach to central government through these negotiations. Uh, and Liverpool has often been seen as the, uh, the Bolshe one. Uh, and of course, uh, I'm sure he's not thanking Boris Johnson for this, but Steve Rotherham's been sort of name checked 99 times. Uh, the deal, as you say, was, was relatively smoothly uh, done in the first instance, though those negotiations continue. Um, interesting that you use that term divide and rule. Of course, in Greater Manchester, they got nine Conservative MPs, a Conservative council, whereas Liverpool City region is very much Labour. There's a Tory MP in Southport. But has it surprised you, the approach that the Tory government have adopted to an area where they've got so many MPs and a number of marginal seats? The politics don't make any sense to me, Ali. I, I think the politics makes sense in that they just want to pit Labour people against Labour people, or they just want to pit parts of the North against each other. And so they have glossed over the fact that the row is not with Andy Burnham. Mm. The row is with Greater Manchester as a whole. Yeah. And you're right, Frank, when you point to those Conservative MPs that have stood four square with Andy. Yeah. Um, as I say, the difference between our situations is one to do with the virus. It's mm. it for us, it's not political and and you know. Merseyside and Greater Manchester, actually one of the things that's massively changed is that folks in, in Merseyside and Greater Manchester, we work really well together. We, we learn from each other and we, you know, we kind of um, particularly, this is like going back into ancient history now, but particularly in how the combined authority could work. Mm. We took inspiration from the Association of Greater Manchester Authorities and, you know, we really learned from that and you know, I think they've learned from us in terms of the centrality of culture to a, a place's economy. You know, I think they've really taken from the things, some of the things that we did. So we work together these days and I think it's suited Boris Johnson to, to, to try and position it as Liverpool versus Manchester. Um, being honest, it, it's not really like that at all. We need further investment for, to support those you know, businesses and individuals who've been left out of the government's existing schemes. And we're continuing to battle for that um, in the same way as Manchester are. The, the only difference is, is, you know, where the viruses are and also the fact that Manchester had had significant lockdowns already for a long period of time and we weren't in that position. So I think I don't, I'm not surprised at Boris Johnson's conduct. What I think people will realise is that it won't get him anywhere because of the Tory MPs who will stand up in the House of Commons and basically call him out on it. So this is, it's really, a, in many ways, it's a blue on blue fight there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And, and you mentioned, um, you know, past government support schemes, people falling through the cracks and not being supported. And of course, what we're aware of in this part of the world is there's there's lots of freelancers, there's lots of self-employed people. The nature of our economy means that you do have many individuals who for six, seven, eight months now have basically not been given any sort of help, uh, universal credit at best. Are they part of the discussions at the moment, Ali, or are the Treasury still saying no to that? The Treasury are still saying no, and that was, you know, part of the content of our discussion uh, with the Chief Secretary. You know, the Treasury are still saying no, but that we won't give up on that. Um, what's more, there has been schemes, money wasted, I believe. I mean, I think they've paid out money um, and have schemes whereby, you know, people are being given money for jobs that never would have been lost. Um, and I think that's a waste. I think if you look at some of the contracting that's taken place, um, I think you can point to areas where the Treasury have not been good guardians of the public pound. Mm. And so it's extraordinarily bitter when we think of those, um, those freelancers and others who have been left out. I think the best thing that we can do is, is keep articulating this, keep pointing it out. And meanwhile, I know colleagues in the city region are, you know, working out how they can best support and help people. Um, it won't, you know, it won't be perfect and we will always advocate, advocate um, for it to be better. But we can we can do some things in the city region to ameliorate it and, and particularly around the supply chain, because look, I think Merseyside has got a lot to be hopeful about from an economic perspective. I think that you have to think about Merseyside's economy a bit more like an emerging economy where it's somewhere that's suffered deep trauma in the past, you know, high levels of unemployment, mass unemployment, and that caused a big shock to the economy. And it caused a lot, a big drop in our skill level in, in terms of the population of Merseyside. People moved away and they took their skills with them, you know. But we, we're we on the emerging economy trajectory now. If you look at our rates of growth, they're very fast. We've got a lot of things that make it easy to, to move the economy on. We've got land, we've got good buildings, and the skill level of our people is has grown faster than other places. You know, so we're addressing some of some of those underlying root causes um, of of the reasons why Merseyside's economy, you know, hasn't hasn't been as strong as other places. And my message to government is if you're interested in that change, if you're really interested in rebalancing, you've got to invest in Merseyside because everybody knows you should back emerging economies, right? Because that's where you get significant uh, rates of growth and that's where you really get to deal with economic inequality. So that's us. You know, if, if they really want to change the fortunes of the British economy, look no further than Merseyside. And so we will continue to make that case because the more that we're able to do so, the more that those who are in the hospitality or visitor supply chain or those who are in the creative and cultural sectors who are getting absolutely battered at the moment, the more that we can do that, the better chance we've got of, you know, protecting as much as we can the, the recent success and moving it on a step further. Mm. It's a really interesting point you make, Ali. The narrative has been used, and I suppose understandably so, uh, that we face a, 
a trip back to the 80s, but I read with interest the comments that you made to the Observer at the weekend, which I thought was spot on, actually, about, you know, Liverpool, Liverpool City region being in a very different place in 2020 to where we were in 1980. You've just touched upon that in terms of us being an emerging economy. Uh, and one of the fastest growing economies in the UK pre-COVID, and there's no reason why we shouldn't return to that and return to that quickly if we can just get this support package and that investment right that's right and um look i'm not um i'm not pollyanna on this right we've got our problems I, you know i represent people who have it really tough mm. and so do other members of parliament you know we've got concentrations of poverty and deprivation and disadvantage that we know about mm. but all i would say is this is not the 1980s because we've had 20 years of collaboration on an idea of what we could be. And we went from a place where, as I said in the House of Commons, where if you told me when I was, you know, seven or eight years of age, that people one day would think it was an absolutely fantastic idea to go for a mini break to Merseyside, I'd have laughed. You know, everybody thought we were but when I moved to London to go to university and I used to say where I was from people used to look at me as if they were a bit embarrassed for me and like well it's okay you've escaped and now if I'm in London and I say where I'm from people say oh that's fantastic I'm thinking about going there do you know any good hotels you know that's the difference we've made collectively collaboratively so we are not in the 1980s we're a place that's very attractive to others to come and visit it's You'll know, um, Frank, and I'm sure business colleagues will know, it's also attractive from an investment point of view, um, in part because what's one of the biggest problems that Britain has got? Housing crisis. We've got a different sort of housing crisis in, in Merseyside in that we've got space, we've got places for people to live. We just need people to come and live in them and invest in those homes. And I think a lot of people, if they could get the chance to move to somewhere like Merseyside where they could have a better quality of life, they bring their skills with them and that's what business needs, you know. So I think we've, a lot of our problems that we've got are actually the opposite of the rest of Britain. And therefore we can attract people and we can attract investments um, in a way that perhaps in London, you know, that's gonna be more difficult because they've got, you know, the, the price of land is huge. Um, people don't necessarily want to move to London where the cost of housing is just ridiculous and where actually you don't, you don't get to live somewhere like, you know, close to Birkenhead Park or Sefton Park or, you, you know, you can't, people in Merseyside have got the option of a relatively um, good, in normal times, public transport system that can get them in and out of the city centre easily. We've got art galleries and restaurants that are as good as anywhere else. So I think we've got all of these natural advantages now that we never had in the 80s um, and that should see us in good stead. As you said, the trick is, can we get the investment in now to put a protective shield around our economy so that it can continue on that path of growth once we're out of this? And I would just say as well, there's a really, really important investment projects as well that we need, whether it's tidal barrage or whether it's continued investment in the kind of science economy that will help us diversify even more and bring people to us. I think with the right investments and the right protections, we could be, you know, we can be on a really good path past the pandemic yeah and let me just touch on the national picture then because we've 
spoken about our region um, and obviously you'll be conscious of what's happening in other parts of what is now described as the Northern Powerhouse, Sheffield, the latest city region to be placed in tier three measures. Now, Keir Starmer's approach to this, and you'll forgive me if I get this wrong, so this is my interpretation and I'm trying to follow what is a movable feast at the moment, is that actually we need a circuit break across England uh, and that national lockdown will be preferable to what we've got at the moment. I would say that if I was living in a place where there hadn't been a significant spike in infection rates, I'd be looking at that and feeling fairly baffled by that approach. So explain to me what Keir's thinking is behind that approach. So Keir's thinking is really that of the SAGE committee, you know, the, the scientists that are there to advise government. And I think it was a kind of um, mouse to the floor moment for us all when the SAGE committee meetings about the kind of regional lockdowns were um, were released because essentially they said, it, you know, it's questionable whether or not it will work. And if I'm honest, I have those questions, right? Wirral is tier three on the border of Cheshire West and Chester, which is tier two. Anybody who knows my neck of the woods will know that, you know, people in Eastham go for dinner in Ellesmere Port and people in Ellesmere Port go to school in Eastham and Neston. It's a very porous border. So this idea of regional lockdowns when the virus is widespread doesn't seem to be as effective as say we had a very low rate of infection, but we were seeing small spikes and you needed to take effective local action. I can see how that would work, but it is widespread at the moment and it's hard to see how essentially random local authority administrative borders, you know, mean anything to the virus. Like I just don't think they do. So um, that's one of the reasons why it's questionable about whether or not this will work. Sage have said they would recommend a um, short period of um, a total you know shutdown with the exemption um, of schools which would mean people working from home and only you know essential workers um, exempt and the reason for that is essentially time to slow down the pace at which the virus is spreading through the country to help hospitals um, to make sure that they are not put under too much pressure and strain and also to get the improvements in the testing system that we need to make our, when we come out of that circuit breaker, to make those systems more effective so that we've got a better chance of catching the virus. Give you an example, a friend of mine, um, you know, his, his family needed to get tested because they'd, there'd been some exposure and it took about four days. His brother works in France and needed to get a test to make sure that he was safe to go to work and it took four hours to get the results. That we need to be that in that place, you know? I, I, and so the yeah. real purpose of it is to buy time to get that done. Now, um, people would argue back though, Ali, with, with that strategy is that we had a national lockdown for near six months uh, and we didn't do that. Uh, and so to put businesses into ASPIC for a further period of time is, you know, for a lot of people now, uh, and I've spoken to, people this week who literally in tears because they think they're going to lose the business during the next quarter and that's not easy conversation for any of us to have I'm sure you're in the same boat and of course you'll be dealing with individuals who are concerned about losing their jobs and then 
not having the necessary income. So there's an awful lot of pain uh, alongside this. And, and, and the question I've started to ask, and I don't really put this out on social media platforms very often because I get called a murderer, but it is the prize worth the price. And when I say that, it's that, you know, I'm talking to mates who are in emergency services. I'm conscious of the fact that anecdotally, at least suicide rates are up. Mental health issues are certainly increasing. Domestic violence, I know from police reports, is on the rise. Child abuse, some horrendous stories from that. What are we protecting here? Uh, and, and is it just about hospitalizations? Is it a case of if we could get that under control and get a test and trace system in place that was effective, that we could start to live with this thing? Because at some point, Ali, my view is uh, not necessarily popular at the moment, but at some point we're going to have to learn to live with this thing. Okay, let me let me make two points in response to that because I think that's a really important question. Um, and yeah, I totally agree with you about the social media conversation. It's really not always helpful um, in the way that people address each other. Um, first point I didn't answer before about what would I say to people who live in areas where numbers are really low. Um, and I would say to them, um, rural's numbers were really low, and then they really spiked up. So this is something that really can affect us all, and nobody should. You know, nobody should take for granted what, what is going on here. Um, and also, and this is to, to answer your, your point there about, you know, is this the right strategy? But one of the problems we've got in here is, at the moment, for people in the north, this already feels like a, a north, it doesn't feel like a local lockdown, it feels like a northern lockdown. Yeah. It feels like the country is being divided. Yeah. Don't forget what we've got going on in Scotland and Wales as well. Um, and all the advice that the behavioural economists and scientists have given to the government is basically whatever you do, make it a simple, inclusive national message, bring everybody together. And that's why I, I really worry about this divide and rule strategy that the Tories have got going on at the moment. I think that's going to make each other people blame each other. Um, and I think they're trying to stir that up. And I think that actually undermines our efforts. I say one final thing about that we need to kind of learn to live with it. And, and to, 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 quite, to quite a strong degree, I think that we have seen people make changes and improvements that mean that we can, we can do that. So hospitality have done everything asked of them. They've done absolutely everything asked. I don't doubt that there are some disreputable business owners out there who've, who've you know, whatever, who are not getting it right. But they are the absolute minority. Hospitality is on everything asked of them. So we are in a different place from when we went into that full lockdown before. We are in a better place. And what, we're what we've argued for is this idea of a circuit breaker. And being honest, half term is coming off anyway. And so I think that the idea is, and the idea coming out of Sage was, can you just um, go for this shorter, uh, more significant approach that everyone is part of to try and contain the virus whilst we continue on that journey of making our response to COVID better so that we are able to live with it more until we've got a vaccine. Because I've seen that, you know, I think the way that shops and pubs and restaurants have dealt with it has been really impressive. And, you know, we can do more of that if we um, if we're able to buy some time. That's the idea behind it. But I completely understand your point, Frank. I, I think that people's health is an important factor in the economy. I don't think we can ever 
um, you know, I think that idea that it's health versus the economy is wrong because actually, if you haven't got a healthy population, you haven't got an economy. <laughs> um, and and a lot of the research, um, the Bank of England actually just re released some research saying that um, that some of the economic effects were actually not caused by the government's measures, but rather by the steps that people took themselves to protect themselves from the virus. So we do we need a healthy population to have a good economy. Um, the only thing that I would say is that um, if if we're going to do that, I think it takes a, a better, more collaborative, more clear approach. And I don't think people want to see politicking. I think they want to see, you know, a unified approach and then everybody can get on with that rather than what we've had over the past week, which has been, yeah, unedifying to say the least. Yeah. Listen, we've got to face a, a challenging few months, no doubt, in the run up to Christmas and maybe beyond. And, uh, you know, it's great to, to be able to stay in touch with you. And I'm sure you'll agree to come back in uh, in the next few weeks. And, always, yeah, always. Uh, about this situation. But I do want to talk about your um, shadow cabinet brief. Uh, and uh, you say it's sport, and of course it is, but equally, uh, you're very passionate about your football. Uh, and I'm not going to talk about club allegiances here. I'm going to talk about how the game is doing in terms of the business of football. And, you know, we always the think mess. the multi-millionaire Premier League club, but actually, you know, there's been all sorts of things. Hasn't the big picture uh, project? Then we've had this latest revelation, the FIFA in conversations or allegedly in conversations with some of our clubs. Uh, Gary Neville and Sir Howard and Andy have been putting together a, a manifesto for football. Um, so what, what's our beautiful national game uh, got in store for it? What are your thinking uh, around all of these issues at the moment? I, I think there's a central problem in the running of football, which is that if you look at the way that the Premier League is run and the EFL is, is run, all of them are basically uh, groups of owners of clubs that sit around the board table and take decisions and they do so on the basis of the interests of their club. Now that can be an enlightened self-interest, it can, you know, it can be a thoughtful self-interest, but at the end of the day, none of them are responsible for looking over the whole of the game and saying, how do we improve the health of this national sport that we all love? They are responsible to the owners of that club for making it successful. Yeah. And the FA, um, could, I suppose they could play that role, but to date they haven't either. Um, and to be fair to them, they don't have any powers to do so. You know, they can run the national team and some, um, you know, the laws of the game and that kind of thing, but they don't really have powers to tell the Premier League what to do. So this is where I think the government need to step in they have been completely absent from this conversation, despite promising a review of football governance only in December. Yeah. So I think that's the answer. If I was if I was sports minister tomorrow, I would take one of the people listed, in, you know, of the names that you just gave there. Any one of them is absolutely capable of leading an independent review and coming up with recommendations. Uh, I've already written to the government telling them what our priorities are, because we've been talking about this in the Labour Party for like 20 years so so we know what we want what we want to do we want to reform the financial regulation we'd like an independent regulator we'd like supporters interest multiple so we'll help them legislate i just i honestly frank i am at a loss to know why the government is so absent from this discussion mm. because 
I think they can do something. I think football itself needs it. I think there's a lot of people in, in football and in running a football who see this problem that they, you know, they need to bat for their club around that table. But they also see the structural issues that they're not in charge of and aren't responsible for solving. But somebody's got to, and I think that's why the government should step in. And we'll keep putting pressure on them until they do. Okay. I want to end on a positive note on the football. Um, women's football, I think, for, for many years has been seen as just Cinderella, um, some females running around the field having a laugh. And over the past few seasons, I think there's been an explosion of talent. It's probably always been there, but for some reason there's been a genuine focus, uh, some really talented female footballers to the fore. The national team's doing well. My team, Everton, yeah, doing great. Doing really well. Uh, and I know you're a footballer yourself. You, you play regularly. But, you know, it's, it's great to see, Ali, isn't it? You know, it is, it is. We, it we, is we used to celebrate the fact that, oh, females are coming to the match. Isn't yeah. that great? But now it's great to see that elite performer in the women's game. It, it is really good. It is really good. And um, I, so I gave the FA quite a lot of stick, much to their <laughs> irritation, when they cancelled the Women's Super League. Um, and I felt legit in doing so because, you know, the men's game continued because they paid for testing. You know, they finished the season because they paid for testing. It's like, is it beyond us to just, like, finish the Women's League? I did give them a lot of stick, but they this week, actually, Frank, they've, they've brought forward, you know, my argument was why cancel if you haven't got a plan for how the progress that we've made gets continued. So this week they've actually published their plan and it's really, really good. They have actually over the past three years doubled the number of women playing football, as well as we've seen all of the things that you've described happening in the elite game. You know, I wish she played for my team. It's great to have Lucy Bronze back in the country. You know, that's amazing. Um, the, the Women's Super League has attracted a lot of the world's best players. That's a really, really good thing. Um, and the FA has got this new plan to continue their levels of success in terms of getting more women playing at the grassroots, getting making sure that girls get equal chance at school, and then making sure that the, the elite level we continue to kick on. You know, we all want to see the Lionesses win something. That would be amazing. I think the country would go mad with happiness. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it, it is. It's really good. It's really positive. I think that it maybe maybe I, I'm just biased, but I think you know, there's nothing more. Football is just better in, yeah. in whatever in whatever way. You know, we, those of us who love the game just want to see more and better football, and seeing women do it, it's just like it, people have just got to think it's double the amount of good football. Um, and you should be. You should be proud of your side, actually. They're doing really well. Absolutely. And how's your game going? Well. <laughs> <laughs> the, women's, the women's team in Westminster that I play for have been getting battered lately, so that's not so great. But um, we're all Valkyries that I play for at home are doing really well. So, oh, wow. Well. Yeah. If there's anybody who's watching this who would like who would like to kick a ball and they never have and they're a woman, give me a shout because we're all Valkyries at amazing. Excellent. And that's a bit like Club V Country, that. I'm sure you're more interested in we're all really than the Westminster mob, but uh, we won't go there. I won't ask don't you. tell them, don't tell I won't, them. I won't ask you to, to declare your loyalties. Listen, Ali, as always, great to have you with us. And uh, thanks for the 
the update in terms of what's happening with the Liverpool City region, the negotiations with Treasury, more to come, I'm sure. And as I say, yeah. if we can get you back in a few weeks' time, that'd be fantastic. No problem. Thanks, Ali. See you soon. Bye.